people struggling, people dying. Every day's another headline. While people cheating, people lying, leaving everybody else behind. We can wait for somebody else to come along. We can get on our feet and shout it. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Our Wisconsin Revolution podcast. My name is Andre Walton. I'm the executive director of Our Wisconsin Revolution, and I am here with my co-host Anders Han Han. How you doing today, Anders? I'm doing good. It's not too hot yet, so it's a good start to a day. Yeah, I was actually in San Diego and it was pretty hot there, so this was pretty <laughs> nice. Uh, but yeah, welcome back to the podcast where we discuss politics and current event and interview guests. Uh, we'll be talking about which guests we have on later today. Before we get in, I wanted to just hint at, hint at some of the interesting polls that came out from the Marquette uh, Law Poll. Um, and it seems, based on the recent polling, that um, the polling more favors um, Democrats this time around. So uh, when they asked the question about Barnes, it says Barnes has been... Um, has Democratic support of 95% of Democrats, which should be expected. And Johnson has overwhelming support of Republicans support, 92% and independents, um, 52% for in, among independents, 52% support Barnes. And among independents, 38% support Johnson. And June among independents, it was 41% for each of them. So it looks like Barnes really shot up um since june and i think that is largely due to two main uh issues obviously uh roe v wade been overturned by the supreme court that was a huge hit for republicans and me and Anders talked about that previously like is that really going to impact the 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 polling or the outcome of the the midterm elections and the reason why we question that because it's affected it everywhere exactly it affected everywhere and we recently just seen in kansas that the voters overwhelmingly uh, voted to keep uh, abortion rights protections in the state constitution. So it, it has definitely caused a shockwave and definitely uh, turned people on, off from the Republican Party, despite some of the issues that people have been clearly having with uh, inflation. So I think, you know, and a lot of and not to mention uh, what's been going on with January 6th, that might have turned people a little bit. But I'm not sure if it has had any of an impact compared to the Roe v. Wade decision. So, yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that uh, about the changing sea tides. Uh, what do you think? Do you think this will hold when it comes November? Because there's still three months left. Uh, a lot of things can change in three months. Uh, but what are your thoughts on that? Right. I think there are a number of factors that are creating, you know, more favorable races for Democrats. Um, I think especially it seems when it comes to Senate races and governor's races. Um, and you talked about, I think, I think Roe v. Wade definitely had an effect. I think the one thing that is key to point out in this, in my opinion, is that the Republicans 
um, even though this was supposed to be a year that they perform well, have a particularly poor slate of candidates. Um, I think when you when you go with like the election overturning Trump folk route, um, I don't think that does very well with independents. I, I don't think it's surprising to say that it doesn't work well with independence um being that that that's such a small group of people in this country um and when you have people like dr oz and you know some of those lunatics they have in um arizona and like the the two crazy erics in missouri and ron johnson here like the republicans have like a uniquely bad like (laughs) slate this year um, and I think that, along with the Supreme Court decision, is is creating more favor a more favorable year for Democrats. I think, in all, uh, it still seems that the Democrats, um, it's more likely than not that they'll lose the House. Uh, weirdly, I think that talking about like those weak Senate candidates in a lot of swing races, though, there is a chance that they could they could hold on to the Senate, which would be interesting. But I think. Um, that, that poll, the Marquette poll was surprising being that it was the first time that Barnes was outperforming Evers, being that Evers is is very much like supported because, you know, he's he's been in office for four years. He's like a cute little um, old man who's like keeping all the evil Republican bills, um, keeping that veto intact. Um, there was another Fox News poll that came out, and I don't think the Democrats were doing quite as well in Wisconsin, but I'm always careful with the polls because... Um, usually they swing towards Republicans when it comes um, uh, to election day. We've seen that, you know, there was even the case where Susan Collins in 2020 was losing by like 10 to 15 points in polling and she ended up winning by 10 to 15 points. So polling is polling, but, you know, you can be a little bit more optimistic about how this year is going to go, I think. Yeah, I think that's a good point because the polling has definitely been off uh, in recent elections. I think since the the the, the election of Donald Trump, um, it's been really off. And one of the reasons why that is, is one of the reports that I've seen is that m- more Republicans are less likely to answer polling questions or or answer accurately because exactly. they don't really want to contribute to the mainstream media, I guess. Um, so it's been really throwing polls off. So that's why polls have been really off. But to go back to uh, to that poll, so I, I read off basically the favorable ratings, but the actual uh, amount of support reads in the new Marquette Law poll, 51 percent of registered Wisconsin voters support uh, Democrat Mandela Barnes, 44 percent support Republican Ron Johnson, U.S. Senate race in the recent poll. Uh, and in June, it was uh, Barnes, 46 percent. Um, and Johnson, 44 percent. So there's a bit of a swing there. <clears throat> but what I found interesting was the Evers and Tim Michaels one, because in, in that same uh, law and uh, uh, Marquette poll, 45, 45 percent of registered voters uh, support Democrat Tony Evers for governor and 43 percent support Republican Tim Michaels. Now, that should be very concerning because that is a very thin, thin race. And we just discussed that the polling has been off. And if we are going to base this off of recent historical trends, it looks like uh, Tim Michaels might have the edge. And that that that's very interesting to me because we obviously know how Roe v. Wade has affected um, affected uh, 
the the polling when it comes to other Democratic uh, districts or other Democratic races. Um, but the reason why I feel like this is interesting, because it seems like voters are more interested in impacting the Senate because they know that the Senate can codify Roe v. Wade, but they're less. This is just my interpretation, but they're less uh, worried about what happens on a state level. That's kind of my interpretation of it. I can't tell you exactly what um, voters are thinking, but I think that's what it is, uh, because obviously it's a little bit different on the state level. But on the federal level, you can really impact the the Roe v. Wade decision. So that's kind of my interpretation. But then again, who knows? But I think it's also because a lot of light hasn't been shined on Tim Michaels yet because he's objectively horrible. (laughs) Uh, And he says some objectively horrible stuff when it comes to uh, workers' rights, when it comes to the election, when it comes to Roe v. Wade. So I think the reason why the polling is so thin is because there hasn't been this light shine on him yet because it it was just the Republican primary and primaries don't really get as much as especially state level primaries don't get, get that much attention. So I'm curious to see whether Tim Michaels poll numbers go down once the, the, the general really starts heating up and I am starting to see more ads. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that changes in the next poll, but it's very close right now. And that should be very concerning for the democratic party. Uh, as of now. And also one other point I'd like to make about these Marquette polls before we move on to the Inflation Reduction Act is that um, both legalization of cannabis and legalization of abortion in Wisconsin have overwhelming bipartisan support, um, showing that when you focus on on material issues and when you focus on on justice, those issues are always very popular, um, more popular, far more popular than either party um, or you know, any members of either party even. So just just a little fun thing to point out. Well, that that makes me question why aren't Democrats running harder on legalization of marijuana? That's right. Because like it's clearly a very popular issue. And I've mentioned this before in 2018, when uh, when legalization of marijuana was on the ballot in multiple, multiple counties in Wisconsin, that increased voter turnout. In, in my opinion, helped Tony Evers propel to win uh, the election. But I'm not seeing much talked about when it comes to legalization of marijuana this time around. There are Democrats who support it, but they're not like out here, you know, talking about it, which is kind of weird to me. But I understand on a state level because, you know, Tony Evers doesn't have like the power to pass it um, without like the, the state legislator, which we which is gerrymandered. But you can still run on it. I mean, like it's a winning message. I mean, people hear that they're going to get out to vote. So that's one of the interesting things. So, yes, polling was very high uh, for uh, legalization of marijuana. But Speaking of polling and and policy and all that good stuff, uh, we did want to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, which recently just passed. Joe Biden signed it into law. Um, And there's some good stuff in there. There's actually some there's about three hundred and sixty nine billion dollars worth of climate spending in the package. Um, There's increased taxes on the the top one percent. There's some uh, some taxes when it comes to stock buybacks. Um, So it's some good things in there. but. I'm sure you've guys heard plenty, a lot of interviews, uh, a lot of articles that mention what is in there. So you can go and check that out. But what I wanted to mention is some of the things that has been unreported. So, for example, uh, there's a provision that requires the federal government to auction off oil and gas leases on federal land, federal lands and in the Gulf of Mexico, which has not been talked about much. 
And the legislation also requires that the government auctions millions of acres of oil and gas leases before it can auction acreage for wind and solar farms. Um, Not to mention, we're going to talk about the drug uh, drug prices don't actually kick in and drug price reform uh, doesn't actually kick in until 2026. So not, not until four years later. So even, you know, Biden, even though Biden passes it, let's say a Republican is in office, he's going to get the credit for drug reform in 2026. So how does that make any sense? But anyways, but I want to go back to the, the, the uh, oil and gas leases uh, right now. And the reason why this is concerning to me, uh, because even though we're having historic amounts of money spent on uh, climate change initiatives, I'm a little bit worried about if, it is just being kind of canceled out by the new oil and gas leases on federal lands and the and the auctioning off millions of acres to oil and gas leases. Because the whole point is that you're supposed to invest more uh into the to clean to clean energy, yet we're incentivizing more oil and glass, which or oil and gas. Um, so I don't know. It's it's very confusing to me, and I, I haven't got a chance to read deeply into this, but I did find that interesting. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that, Anders. Yeah, I mean, I think um, while there there are good things in this bill, I think the thing that frustrates me the most is the fact that it has been called a climate bill. When I think it would be is is very bold to call it such a thing. First of all, Joe Manchin takes the most oil and coal money in the country. Any quote unquote climate bill that he signs on to, I would be concerned about being that basically him signing on to a climate bill is the signature of approval of oil and gas corporations. If a climate bill is approved by oil and gas corporations, I'm going to tell you right now, it's likely ineffective. Um, the mandating uh, auction of lands for drilling uh, is very scary. Also, the really odd thing, and, and you mentioned this, one odd thing they put in in there is for every subsidy they give to a renewable solar or wind project, they need to also subsidize a new fossil fuel project. So how, like, I don't, I don't see what the benefit to that is. At that point, you're not actually doing anything for the climate. All you're doing is just throwing away government money and lighting it on fire while not actually helping the renewables industry. Um, and all those oil and gas projects are projected to create uh, or emit 110 million tons of new carbon dioxide just from U.S. produced oil and gas. Um, I know it, it's, it's frustrating because uh, like the annual spending, and I, I know you, we, we love to talk about this, but the annual spending... Uh, for the Pentagon is $800 billion just for the Pentagon. The annual proposed climate spending after this bill is $37 billion. That's it. $37 billion when we give $800 billion to the Pentagon and we're told that we can't spend more money on climate. And the last thing I wanted to point out, and actually I learned this because of David Sroda, um, the reason that Joe Manchin signed on the key, like his last demand to agree to the deal with Schumer, him and Schumer made um, a backdoor deal where um, 
it, it, the the way that people think this will work out is the next time there's like a must pass budget bill, Schumer is going to put in a um, an exception in here, changing the standards and permits that companies have to get to build oil pipelines to make it easier to build oil pipelines. Um, and, you know, that's been a hot political issue, especially in Wisconsin for the past few years. Um, overall, you know, I think there are, there are some of these good tax implications. I think something that's very disappointing is we didn't get the child tax credit back. Bernie was the only one in the entire Senate that voted in favor of adding the child tax credit to the bill. But I think it's very deceiving overall to call this a climate bill when the actual progressive provisions of the, the provisions that people like us would be happy about are the tax side of it. When it comes to climate, all that they basically did is <laughs> rather than leveling the uneven playing field, they just gave both sides of, of the issue, both renewables and oil, more money, um, which is concerning. Well, that's the problem with these, you know, these bills is that they they never really highlight the, the, the heinous stuff in here. Um, and, and all the articles that I've read and what I've seen in the news, oh, the historic climate spending. This is so great for uh, climate activists. And then deep down, it's just like, oh, no, we're going to we're going to, you know, incentivize more oil and gas, which right, is frustrating, for, which is frustrating for me because we're 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 continuing to be told that um, that this climate bill is the most historic spending. And yes, by definition, it is because we haven't historically spent money on the climate on uh, addressing climate change. But the reason why I think that that's a little bit misleading is because the way the bill is written is not required to do these things. It incentivizes companies to do this, but it also incentivizes companies to oil and gas drill. So if they already have these have these operations set up in oil and gas and not in renewable energy, guess what they're going to take? Oil and gas, yeah. right? Because they already have these these operations set up. They have the infrastructure built and ready to go. So they're going to take oil and gas nine times out of 10 before they take on renewable energy. And that's what's something that I don't think people are pointing out enough, because if you're going to be incentivized, you're going to take the, the approach that is least cost effective to you um, or most cost effective to you. So it's just I don't know. The, the whole thing is a bit uh, annoying to me. And I think. I think the the issue with this being, and you talk about like how it's pitched as a historic climate bill, that's that's something I want to touch on, is like, yes, this is a lot of spending in the climate area, but at the same time, and, and this is something that David Sorota said, is if this is the best that we can come up with when it comes to climate, we are totally ecologically like screwed. We are We are in big trouble. If this is the best we can come up with, and this is what we consider a historic bill, like this isn't, this isn't even... It's not that it's not enough. It's like it's not even resembling something that could even remotely be considered enough. <laughs> yeah. And and that goes along with what we mentioned earlier about the drug prices, that it's not going to actually kick in until mm -hmm. 2026. So it's one of those symbolic victories. It's like, oh, we got drug price reform. And the, and the reason why it's frustrating for me, because we really only got drug price reform on 10 drugs. So that means 
the rest of the drugs are still going to be price gouged. What if one of those drugs is yours? So it really want to let really impact you that much. You know, it's like, OK, let's say um, you were happy about this potential win, but then you you have EpiPens or whatever. That's just an example. I don't know if that's one of the drugs, but they're still seven hundred dollars a pop. You know, <laughs> it's just like. Right. It's just like, no, uh, this is this is the problem with, you know, um, basically this capitalist neoliberal approach to these negotiations is that it seems like a victory on the surface. But once you look deeper into the legislation, and the details, it really isn't a victory for anyone except for corporations and the wealthy, because if you're only negotiating 10 drugs, then the pharmaceutical industry is still going to break in billions worth of profits for get this part tax subsidized drugs. So that means we pay for the drugs that the pharmaceutical industries are profiting from. So we pay for them. We give the give it to the pharmaceutical industries and they profit from us. So we're basically triple taxed in the process of getting these drugs. So this whole thing is just like it's such a letdown when you see these things, because this is something that can be done immediately. Like, please, somebody answer the question. Why do we have to wait four years for drug uh, negotiations to kick in? No one has an answer besides that it benefits the, the pharmaceutical industry. And that's that's just it. You know, and that's what happens when you take millions from the ph- pharmaceutical industry to uh, to benefit your campaign. And I think I think you mentioned this um, earlier, but I a big question about having this off until 2026 is, you know, when it comes to playing the game of politics, you know, when Donald Trump sent out the stimulus checks, he made sure that every single one had his had his signature on them. Right. Um, when it comes to doing this, if Joe Biden considers this bill a big win, why kick this off until 2026? And when, you know, potentially, let's say, you know, God forbid, in 2024, you know, Donald Trump or DeSantis wins, guess who gets credit for prescription drug prices going down? The, uh, the, the new president. It doesn't make any, like politically, it doesn't make any sense. Being that this is something that would actually help a lot of people. The one thing that affects people who go to the store day to day and pay for something. The one thing in that, that bill that does that is, is doesn't kick in for four years. And by then, you know, who knows who's the president? Exactly. And it's not even a political win for Joe Biden. And the reason why that is, doesn't make any sense because we know how Americans have very short term memory when it comes to policy, because when that kicks in, they're going to be like, oh, this person did that. And you guys eat it, you know, libtard, especially if it's like a, a conservative in there. <laughs> so it's just like that makes absolutely no sense. But yeah. whatever. I mean, that's some details, some of the unfortunate details about the Inflation Reduction Act that maybe some of you all did not hear about. So there you go. Feel free to look deeper into it, but we're excited to bring you another exciting interview. We're going to be interviewing Hannah Bochamp Pope. She's running for the 88th Assembly District in Wisconsin. She's an OWR endorsed candidate, and we're excited to bring her on. So stay tuned for this exciting interview, and you won't want to miss this.
everyone welcome back to the our wisconsin revolution podcast like i said we have a very special guest on today hannah bochamp pump pope sorry about that uh she's running for the 88th assembly district hey hannah how you doing today good good thank you so much for having me appreciate you coming on i know you're a very busy woman uh but again we appreciate you coming on so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to run for the 88th assembly district Yeah. So just a little bit about me. I like to start off by saying I am not a politician. I am not looking for a political career here. Um, Right now, I'm going into my senior year at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, where I triple major in democracy and justice studies, psychology and sociology and anthropology, and minor in criminal justice. So I'm really interested in looking at institutions that we say are for people and and the betterment of people, but really are just built on profit, um, specifically our criminal legal system, um, our mental health system, our healthcare system just in general. Um, But yes, so I also do a lot on campus. I'm the president of our Black Student Union. I am a co-founder and treasurer for our Phoenix Law Society that we started up last semester. Um, I'm a board member of the nonprofit uh, based in Milwaukee, but kind of throughout the state of Wisconsin called Leaders Igniting Transformation. Uh, We're a black and brown youth led political org that looks to seek, uh, we seek to develop future leaders and we organize and um, do a lot, especially with the election. So I would say out of all the hats that I wear, I love my work with Lit. Um, And I also do some work in my neighborhood association, but the reason why I'm running for office is first and foremost, John Marco was uncontested. Um, And we know that uncontested elections usually lead to tyrannical behavior. Um, We have someone who's been in office for so long now, but his constituents don't even know who the representatives are, which is troubling. Um, And although John Marco and I, we we definitely differ on how we would vote on policies and and, and which policies we would introduce or or sponsor. Um, It's also about how do you treat people when you're in a room with them? How do you talk to other people? How do you have conversations? Because I truly believe that like there's not one party or one person who can fix all the issues that we have. It's really gonna take all of us coming together and being able to step in the middle to you know build a better Wisconsin. So I'm running for office to bring a fresh perspective. Um, obviously, I'm young, I'm black, and I'm a woman, so it's going to shake things up a little bit. But there's no other woman of color on the ballot for Northeast Wisconsin. So when we're asking ourselves, what does our representation really look like? Um, I just feel like it's kind of bigger than just District 88. You know, it's about giving a voice to the people who usually don't have one. Yeah. Um, so seeing a college student and now in the Fox Valley, we have two we have two college students who are running for assembly. There's you and there's Joey Van Derzen and um, De Pere. And as a college student who works in politics and organizing, like I know that that can be really challenging to balance. So what has like what has your life been like? Um, as like a college student who's actively running for office. And I guess, I guess with this upcoming year and like the election, it'll, it'll only get busier, but what is, what is that balance like? And what is that balance like? And two, um, do you have, do you run into issues when you're meeting with like 
citizens and talking to them about you running and being only a college student? Is that something that they admire? Is that something that they're kind of like, they kind of stop at? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I appreciate you bringing up Joey. He's a great guy. I'm really excited for what will happen in November. But, you know, obviously it's difficult. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's a breeze. Like, it's very hard. Um, And so I just took the LSAT a couple weeks ago. And it's weird because I still have to prepare like I'm going to lose in November and like apply to grad schools and, you know, focus on my next year. So it's really weird because I feel like I'm putting my eggs in a lot of different baskets. um, And, you know, but, you know, you deal with it and you find ways. And I think the most important thing is just taking time to do things that you still love, you know, spending time with the people that you love and making sure that you're taking time for yourself too. Um, And to your second question, you know, when people hear that I'm a college student, it's usually not the first thing that I bring up. um, But if it does come out when I'm talking and, you know, like door knocking or whatever it may be, some people I would say are excited about it. They're like, oh yeah, we need more young people in office and they're behind it. But some other people are kind of more hesitant, um, <laughs> especially, you know, not even having graduated from undergrad yet. And I think, you know, that is another thing that they bring up is how are you going to balance all of this? And it's like, okay, well, you know, I would say I'm kind of used to running around crazy all the time. Like even since like high school, I would do lots of clubs, um, did like lots of sports, stayed very busy. And so kind of just trying to keep that time management and most importantly, taking time for myself so that I don't burn out. Um, that's what I would recommend to any other young folks who are looking to get involved. But, you know, and then at the end of the day, you have to remind yourself that I'm doing this for a bigger reason. Like it's a little bit of a sacrifice, but it's going to be worth it. So yeah, but you find a way. Yeah, for sure. And I'm 27. And when I was running for Alderman, they were still calling me a baby. Like, oh, you're just a baby. I'm like, I'm 27. But whatever. <laughs> That's how it is when you're a little bit younger. But they, they, you know, they do like to see young people running for office. But I do want to change the subject a little bit. So I did get, did get a chance to watch your TED Talk. Uh, that's pretty impressive. Um, oh. So I wanted to ask you, how has your struggles with uh, mental health really shaped your your approach to mental health policy? Because obviously mental health is one of those issues that continue to get sweeped under the rug and especially in America. And I think that has to do with our healthcare healthcare system that is very expensive. People can't access it. And also people just and, and culturally, I know, especially I'm a black man, um, culturally, we try to pretend that we're a little bit stronger than we are or that, you know, it's not really an issue, but it is. Um, can you talk about how me- the struggles with mental health, uh, health impacted your policy stances? Yeah. So thank you for, by the way, watching that TED talk. I know it's pretty long, so I do appreciate the people who can make it all the way through. Um, but, you know, being able to live the experience of like seeing um, state provided therapists or state recommended therapists, seeing um, what it's like then when you have the privilege to seek care otherwise, um, seeing what it's like to like literally go to a facility where you are told that you're there to get better, but 
at the same time, you have these different parts of you taken away and you don't have a choice. Um, you know, you're on medication and, and they don't ask you, they just prescribe it to you after meeting you once. Um, that is all very alarming. <laughs> and my, my interactions with mental health, you know, on a primary view, I know that we can do better, but also seeing a lot of my family members um, who struggle with like addiction, for example, and how they were criminalized. And even though that's a different type of system, it all really comes together on how do our, our political leaders and the people who we look up to, how do they view healthcare? And so you know, I'm still kind of learning the policy side to everything, but I think that until we really have institutions and systems that are set up at for the people at the base level, you know, not the people at the top who are signing all the contracts, but never meeting any of their clients, not the people in between who this is just their nine to five where they just need a paycheck and they don't really care if that extra thing at the day gets done, even if that extra thing will literally impact the course of someone's life in their psychological development. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a psych major as well. So I've taken some, just some small, you know, drugs and behavior or uh, physiology, psychology classes where we study like pharmacology. And, you know, one of my professors really opened up my eyes to how the pharmacology system within itself is so set up for profits, not for help. And so I think that there's a lot of work that we can do. Um, and I would say that that is kind of uh, a perspective that I feel like we can apply to a lot of different things. But it, when it comes to mental health, you know, we have a lot of steps that we need to take. And I think, you know, to the point that you had made, one of the first steps that we can take is just to talk about it and really, you know, be honest with these things um, and seek to empower other people to talk about their experiences as well. Because like I said, we can't do it alone. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it definitely answered my question. Appreciate that. Um, so Hannah, you talk a lot about, uh, you know, your, your interest in your studies being in, um, looking at our institutions in this country and, um, trying to look at how we can make them more people focused. I know a big issue and, you know, in Northeastern Wisconsin, it's, it's a very, very white place to be. So there is often a conception that there aren't necessarily a lot of the same issues with black and brown people and um, the way that they're treated by police up here. Mm. Obviously, that's not true. You know, we've had a lot of problems in Green Bay and Appleton and Oshkosh um, with police violence towards black and brown people. Um, so, you know, as a young black woman who lives in a place um, like Green Bay, where often your voice isn't heard being in such a predominantly white city. Um, what is your like vision for what like a safer community can look like? How do we, how do we like disrupt that, this, this cycle that we're in of um, violence, you know, state violence towards black and brown people, especially in areas like this, where people don't think about it as much of a predominant issue. Yes. Love this question. <laughs> so um, first, I want to talk about police and then I want to talk about, you know, our carceral system. So when it comes to police, you know, you had made a very good point that 
people don't think it's that bad, you know, because it's not all over the place. Um, it doesn't get publicized as much. Um, but really, you know, the reality is very true that black and brown and queer folks do experience a lot of brutality from our law enforcement um, officials. And so I think, you know, for us to shake things up and, and really build safer communities, we have to, first of all, come to an agreement as a community of what is the point of our police? What is the point of our police and what is the point of our carceral system? Because if the point of our police is to walk the streets and make people feel fear that at any moment they could be like searched, they could be beaten down, they could um, have their rights taken away, you know, we're going to become a community in which we don't trust each other. And then when we do need help, we're not going to go to our law enforcement officials to seek it, um, which is kind of like a negative feedback loop. But I think that it's going to take a lot of relationship building. Um, you know, I think that if we do come to this agreement as a community that our police are here to protect and serve, that also means you have to know who you're protecting and serving. Um, if we have police officers who, rather than walk the streets to make people feel feel like they're um, like in fear or, or anxious, if we have police officers who we recognize and who know us by our first names, who can, you know, say like, hey, rather than, you know, that incident in Chicago, I think it was like a 13 year old boy. This is kind of this is past 2020, maybe 2021. I want to say his name was Christopher, but I could be mistaken. Um, but rather than, you know, this 13 year old boy being out in the middle of the night and a Chicago police officer just running up and, you know, shooting on him, he should be like, Hey, Christopher, like, why are you out so late? What's going on? You know, like it's a school night. Shouldn't you be at home? But instead our, our police officers, they operate with a shoot first and ask questions later type of deal. You know, I'm going to beat you bloody and then see what you were guilty for. And that's not the America, the criminal legal system that we live in. It's supposed to be your, your, your innocent till proven guilty. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I think that, you know, for safer communities, we're really going to have to do a lot of relationship building. I think that our um, police officers are, their training needs to be revolutionized completely. Like, I don't know. I, I went on a Green Bay police ride along just to see what it was like. Not that I would want to be a police officer, but just to see really what it is and how do we treat about, how do we talk about people? How do we treat people? I remember there was a woman who had walked to the office and she was trying to report a sexual assault that had happened from her father, but it happened when she was very young and now she's very old. She was having some kind of mental breakdown and, you could tell because her thoughts were kind of distorted all over the place. She wasn't really making sense, but she really just needed help. And after lots of back and forth with this woman, we ended up just placing her in the hands of her husband and she left because we didn't give her the treatment that she was looking for. And afterwards, they were typing up the police report. And when an officer was describing it to another officer, they're like, yeah, she just had daddy issues. Like, you, you can't serve humans, you can't serve people, 
and also think of them as just a basket case. It doesn't make sense. And that dehumanization in the rhetoric we use, in the way we talk about people, that you know comes into our mind and it really helps uh, it helps officers um dehumanize and devalue people and, and that allows that brutality and that treatment to continue more easily um you know neurons that fire together wire together so if you think something over and over and over again you're going to start to really believe it and so you know i think it's we have a long way to go now when it comes to this part of you know our country this part of Wisconsin and our carceral system, again, we have to ask, what is the point? Do we think that when someone breaks a law that we should throw them away in a cage for the rest of their life, they don't get to see the sun except for maybe an hour a day, they don't get to see their families, like, we even restricted the books that they can read and how they educate themselves and where their mind can even expand to. and. And when you think about, you know, people who are put in solitary confinement simply because they're disabled and they their their accommodation can't fit to a regular jail cell. I mean, it's outrageous how we treat people. And then once maybe if they do get out, we send them out with a bus pass and maybe two two to five dollars and we say good luck and then we wonder why we have such a uh, high rate of frequent flyers in our country 66 percent of people who leave um, a jail or prison will go back if i failed 66 percent of my tests or 66 percent of my internship tasks at work i would be fired i would not be a student yet since the reagan area since the reagan era when we decided to grow our carceral system literally exponentially we have just thrown people away they come out they're not getting better crime is still going up every year and taxpayers are told that they need to fund more to their local community their local uh prison jail or or um police department and criminal behavior is still going around so if our goal is to really throw people away forget about them and and you know, say, good luck, we'll see you again when we can make more money off of you when you're in our cage, um, you know, then we're doing a good job. But if we actually want to say, what is the point of our system? It's to help people and rehabilitate them, not with, against their will, but when they are choosing to do so and they're choosing to better themselves, um, are we giving them those resources to actually be safer in the community? Um so yeah, I know I just kind of went off on a tangent there, but I think that when it comes to building safe communities, we can't just keep giving more and more money to police so that they buy these big SWAT cars and have all this military weaponry. What we need to do is take that money and give people in the community resources and opportunities and start from the bottom because what we're doing, it, it doesn't work. I think that's a good point that, um, you just you just said that it should be more about rehabilitation. And I think the, the issue that we have in America is that we don't view the way we view crime and how we deal with it is the problem in itself. In other countries, they view crime as a public health crisis. So they approach it that way instead of, you know, trying to beat the cancer out with your fist. You know, they're actually trying to cure the cancer. Um, and that's the difference. So one of the issues that I continue to find is that 
um, we're not using the prison system to make people better. We're just saying, all right, you're going to serve your punishment. And once you get out, you're on your own. Um, and so everything, we just have like a one size fits all approach and we don't really have any creativity in dealing with this. And that's why I think we continue to say the solution to everything is more policing, even though that doesn't like lower crime rates, that doesn't deal with mental health issues. But I think, you know, that's why I appreciate that you, you're very passionate about it. Um, and actually highlighting this because it's not talked about enough. And a lot of uh, politicians are unwilling to deal with this issue because they're afraid of police unions and afraid of police criticism. But it's something I talked about as well in my campaign. And I was he- heavily criticized for it. But hey, somebody's got to start somewhere. But um, I want to ask you another question um, about uh, what you're hearing at doors. So one of the issues that is a hot topic right now is obviously abortion rights. Are you hearing a lot of people really, really you know, pissed off about it at the doors and really asking, what are you going to do about it? Um, yeah, I guess, what are you hearing at the doors when it comes to abortion rights? Yeah, so um, a lot of constituents are obviously kind of fired up, you know, voters that we us- we wouldn't usually see that, um, you know, wouldn't kind of sit on the sidelines. Maybe they'd vote, but they wouldn't really be too passionate about what they're going to the polls for. Maybe they wouldn't even have voted at all. Um, we definitely see more women getting engaged in that fight and in that discussion because uh, it applies to them directly. And um, I think it's starting to open their eyes to how the system as a whole really is uh <laughs> built for one sort of person and you know they're they're definitely enraged but when um when we have people from you know the other side who make the argument for pro-life you know i just try to remind them that legally right the way that roe v wade was able to be overturned and the power was given back to the states is over the scotus's interpretation interpretation of the right to privacy now, that is why there's this other discussion about, well, this could affect um, like homosexuality, interracial marriage, birth control and contraceptives. But if people who were usually maybe pro-choice or pro-life, I'm sorry, start to understand that your right to privacy could include maybe your gun rights, um, I think that then they would be a little bit more interested in what we're talking about. And so um, legally, the operational you know, process of how we have gotten to where we are. It's a lot broader than, you know, the discussion is usually held in. And I think that if more people start to understand that it can apply to them, they will be engaged in the fight. But, um, you know, when it comes to the rights, you get a safe and legal abortion, definitely seeing a lot more women and non-binary folk come out, you know, because this is, this is an issue that impacts everybody. So, yes. Yeah. And, um, and uh, my last question, I wanted to circle back to kind of this talk about being a student running for office. So, you know, I think a lot of people think as of college is this like equalizer where all these students who come from different backgrounds are living on one campus together, um, you know, eating in the same place, going to the same classes, Uh, you know, going to a college campus, I think you find that it's the exact opposite of that. 
um, you know, college students experience food insecurity at a rate like four times higher um, than the average rate in America. Um, I, I personally know a lot of people that have trouble paying their tuition term to term. Um, and, you know, I think it gives you it like going to college gives you a perspective on life almost in the opposite sense of it being an equalizer where you're actually learning the struggles of being, um, you know, an adult in a society where you're expected to live paycheck to paycheck. Um, so I guess like how has being a college student kind of shaped your, your view on a lot of those issues like wages, um, and access to food, um, and things like student debt, like paying off student debt at the same time as you're, as you're running for office. Um, you know, how, how do those issues kind of shape your view on how you would govern in the assembly? Yeah, really good question. So, um, you know, the, the many struggles of being a broke college student definitely infiltrate my life on a daily basis. Like, I remember, like you said, like, how am I going to make it through this week? Like, what am I going to eat? I've had ramen every single day. This is very unhealthy. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, organizing for higher wages on, you know, UWGB specifically is something that Lit has been working for on this campus for a couple of years now. Um, and we always get so much pushback from the administration. It's, it's honestly, it blows my mind on how the administrators of an institution that was built for students don't want to support the students, but yet every year we hire more and more and more administration. So, Again, I think that, you know, our state legislatures, they they have a lot of power and opportunity to be leaders and and set um, expectations for wages so that other institutions like campuses can follow and be like, hmm, maybe we should, you know, pay people a, a livable wage. That would be great. Um, <laughs> so, yes. And then when it comes to the cost of college, I mean, this is ridiculous. This the whole system of higher education is ridiculous. Like, yes, undergrad is extremely expensive. The fact that there are application fees deters students from even applying to college in the first place. And we know who that's going to affect more than other groups. You know what I mean? Um, I know many of my friends have dropped out in the last two or three years and Financially, it was worse for them to start college and not finish than to even go in and enroll in the first place just because of the financial debt and the loss. Um, so, you know, we, we have to this. I don't think like one big wipe away of all the debt is really going to do the problem. That's like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. But I do know that the state is sitting on a lot of money that could be spent in our educational system. Um, and, and, you know, we really have to prioritize, do, do we care about the fact that students need to be successful, not only inside the classroom? Yes, we have, you know, there's a MacBook in this room I'm sitting in right now in the library. Yes, we have things like that, but are we giving them opportunities? Are we paying them enough? And, um, you know, on-campus wages are just ridiculous. And the workload is growing more and more every year because we're becoming shorter staffed. And so 
on top of the fact that we're, we're student workers. The student comes first. I should be studying right now. <laughs> and I should be able to not be distracted by the fact that I'm so hungry that I, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, and we shouldn't have to do a bajillion things just to be able to, you know, provide for ourselves. That allows the experience of higher education only to be successful for, again, a certain demographic of people who have that privilege, who have that opportunity. So I, I don't really think it's an equalizer in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I, I joined our student government last semester in the spring. And I was so oblivious <laughs> to all of the issues that were going on, like looking at the numbers of our student uh, our student or segregated fees and how they're split up to go to like, it's like 330 some dollars each semester for students to pay for our D1 athletic school that never wins. We don't have a football team. We don't have a track team, but we have four counselors that serve all 8,000 students in between four branches of our campus, between the Manitowoc, Sheboygan, and main campus. We have four counselors who drive. And, you know, I remember for BSU, we had to have this emergency open forum because of the bogus university policing that was going on. And they were stopping a bunch of students for cannabis and Delta-8, which is like a whole nother tangent we could go on to. Um, and literally taking away their financial aid, taking away their scholarships, like that takes, yes. Like one of my, one of my good friends, we used to organize a lot together. His name is Kiwan Goldsmith. He doesn't go to this campus anymore because, because of cannabis and Delta eight and then them taking away his scholarships. Like it's all, it's, it's, it's hard for students, um, financially, but, <clears throat> but we had this emergency open forum and afterwards, the Dean of Students wanted to meet with me to like report back on what the students had said. And I remember saying to, I remember saying like mental health services inadequately came up a lot. Like we need more counselors. We need trauma certified counselors because we had students going to counseling appointments and they were told within the first 20 minutes of their hour long session that your trauma is too too traumatic to, for me to deal with and I'm not certified to help you. And they were given a crisis number and then sent out the door. Like, okay. And I remember the associate vice dean of students, so many administrators, literally she said to me, well, out of all the UW schools, we're ranked third for counselor to student ratio. And I looked at her and I was like, I don't care if we're first in the state first in the country or first in the damn universe. If your students are saying that there are not enough services, there are not enough services. And, you know, that's not related to wages or anything like that. But again, that just goes to show where are our priorities. And I think that um, if I was elected in November, definitely <laughs> readjusting the system um, as a whole. And then, you know, I think people need to start maybe thinking more broadly about the entire, the entire system, like I said, these application fees, even applying to grad school now, it's so discouraging. Like we don't want people to do better. We have the LSAT, which is literally not about the law at all. 
And it's just about how well you can take a test that's Eurocentric and biased, along with every other GRE, MCAT, all of this. Every test costs $200. So again, who is able to spend $200 on a test? Like, it's all, we we have a lot of work to do. (laughs) And again, our school system is just another, another branch of this tree that is built for profit but not mm-hmm. for students, not for people who want to better themselves. So, yes. Well, yeah, that's definitely an issue. And I, I always find it ironic as a, a graduate of UW-Whitewater that I'm $38,000 in debt, and yet UW-Whitewater calls me, asks me for donation. Like, I still owe you. Stop calling me. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> don't ever call me again. I'm still yes. paying you off. But, Literally. yeah, I think you're, you're right. Uh, there's some serious reforms that need to be done in our educational system, especially higher education uh, when it comes to the cost of college, when it comes to the mental health services in college, and also the wages in college. I never made over $9 on college campuses, and I was broke as hell. Um, And I I seen that firsthand when I dislocated my finger and got a $3,000 hospital bill. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay that, but um, it's a serious issue. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I haven't heard anybody really discuss those issues in depth. So I really do appreciate that. So really appreciate the interview. Hannah, can you tell us how people can help out your campaign, where they can find you online and what can we do um, as just individuals to, you know, really impact these issues um, that you really care about, at least within your campaign? Yeah. Yeah. So any, anyone who is looking to get involved and help push this movement forward, um, we're looking for door knockers. We are looking for people who are willing to pick up the phone and make some calls to people. Um, but, you know, we'll also take any type of donation if people are willing. Um, I'm more looking for those door knockers just because I feel like boots on the ground is really how we can kind of get out the vote. Um, but happy for any kind of support. If people know they're in the district, um, maps just changed, so make sure you double check. But if people know they're in the district, I'd be happy to come drop off a yard sign for you. Um, and yeah, you can find our website on Hannah for assembly88.com. Um, same thing for all of the socials. And yeah, what, I guess to your last point. That was a really vague people- question. It's not. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just just keep pushing forward. You know what I mean? Even if it's not door knocking, making phone calls or doing political things, just keep revolutionizing yourself to not fit into all these boxes and not comply to the system. Um, I think that that more than anything will be more impactful on the issues that I care about than knocking on the door. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. Awesome. Again, everyone, Hannah is an endorsed candidate by our Wisconsin Revolution. We are proud to endorse her. You can also volunteer with our Wisconsin Revolution. We'll be doing some operations to help her campaign out. So there's two ways you can get involved. So again, that's Hannah. She's running for the 88th Assembly District. So if you can help out, do help out. We need more young people in office, like we said before. So again, thank you all for tuning into the Our Wisconsin Revolution podcast. You guys have a great rest of your week. struggling people dying every day's another headline while 
People cheating, people lying, leaving everybody else behind. We can wait for somebody else to come along. We can get on our feet and shout it. Right now is the moment we've been waiting for. Right now, never been.